Welcome everyone to Lessons with Mike. I'm here today with um, a special guest, Mr. Adam, who has published this idea that he has that we're going to get into in, uh, in detail later. Adam, thanks for being here. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, uh, yeah, really look forward to having this conversation. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so Adam, your idea um, is called The Ultimate Fan Experience. Uh, before we get into that idea, can you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you came up with this? So uh, my professional experience is in uh, live entertainment, uh, in the music business, and uh, putting on like, you know, plays and things like that. And so uh, before we would put on those concerts, um, a lot of times, especially when I was in college, they would make us hire um, off-duty police officers uh, to just work security at, at the concerts. And so before we would do that, uh, we would make sure that, you know, the, the off-duty sheriffs that we hired uh, knew, you know, the layout of the venue. They knew where, you know, the fire extinguishers are. And we wanted uh, rowdy fans handled. So I thought, why not take that event and just, you know, take that, that, you know, security meeting and just make it the event itself. Um, you know, I went to a Patriots game uh, three years ago now, right before the pandemic. And, um, you know, I remember seeing like, I mean, so the Patriots stadium, it's not in Boston, it's in Foxborough, but there were Boston cops working it there were foxborough police there were dedham police there were massachusetts state police there were county sheriffs i i at least six or seven different jurisdictions represented you know on that field and so why not you know use that relationship um between the team and the um you know, police that, that they rely on to keep fans safe and just use that as a means for change. Um, you know, uh, I don't know, sort of recognize that necessary role, you know, cause like if cops are abolished, mm -hmm. who works security at the Boston marathon? Yeah. Right. And I've seen a lot of, uh, lot of, there's been a lot of talk lately about uh, abolishing the police, but um, I was reading some of the things that you had sent me about how the, why this wouldn't work. And if you get rid of the police, it creates a whole other problem because then everything becomes private security. And then right. some little old grandma who doesn't have any money gets robbed, calls the private security. Oh, we can't help you. You can't afford our rates. Exactly. That's what it's going to turn into. Yeah. 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 And if you look at, at places like Minneapolis already, they're having to rely on private security to fill in for police officers because they can't get enough new hires to replace all the cops that are, are retiring or, or just leaving. Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of demoralization um, is a direct result of the movement to defund or abolish police. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, sort of one of those unintended consequences and um because like, we, i think anyone can agree that there are some fundamental issues with how the police operate oh absolutely and, uh, with what like one major thing they do is they over police certain communities certain areas and there is a systematic bias i think to a degree oh yeah 
Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. But, you know, scratching the whole system currently the the infrastructure to do that is not in place. And I think right. that would end up doing a lot of harm more so than the positives would be. Yeah. And, you know, you look at some of the work that's been done in the past to get accountability and oversight for police, you know, as far as like uh, body cameras and, um, you know, civilian review board like that. And I just wonder, you know, does Blackwater even have cameras are, you know, and I highly doubt they're going to be subject to any sort of civilian oversight. And I just am afraid that we'll toss all of that out the window and, you know, be, be left with, um, you know, it's something worse than, than what we have now. And, you know, again, the, the unintended consequences of, you know, trying to make this radical change. Yeah. You see, I agree with you on that, because when you have these private security firms versus the public police department, the, the police departments are open to a lot of uh, oversight, a lot of review that yep. I don't think would be present in a private security for, firm. Right, right, if, right. Uh, for example, if, if, if a cop in any case, there's any kind of weapons discharge, they automatically go on leave for a little bit while the investigation yep. happens. And if it's yeah. determined that uh, they acted improperly. Usually, I mean, not in all cases, but usually they're suspended or removed without pay. Right. Sometimes that doesn't happen, but, you know, it happens more often than I think it would if a private firm was in charge of everything. Exactly. Exactly. They would be able to hide behind that sort of corporate shield, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, so by, I don't know, recognizing that necessary role. Um, we can then sort of change the narrative on the whole defunding conversation, mm-hmm. um, you know, and just, uh, you know, use that ultimate fan experience thing to, you know, boost morale and, you know, but at the same time, um, you know, use it as a means for change because one of the key aspects of this, you know, whole ultimate fan experience for the folks in blue is empowering activist athletes to actually facilitate anti-racist education, uh, de-escalation training, and then an additional layer of, of background checks. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, have some sort of contractually required. This is not optional. It's a, contract requirement so if you want to work and get that overtime and the sideline season tickets to you know a vikings game or a ravens game you're gonna have to to listen to these folks talk about whatever they want to talk about you know i don't i'm not specifically prescribing any sort of like one curriculum Um, I have done some research and and there are some that I think uh, provide some, you know, uh, unique and really positive opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's all just about changing the dynamics of how training is facilitated currently. Yeah, let's Um, let's that a little bit, because right now uh, they're trained by other officers and specialists 
who have those same experiences. Exactly. And this ultimate fan experience, the idea is basically taking professional athletes and facilitating using them to facilitate a different type of training experience. Right. That would uh, that would get the the officers more accustomed and strengthen relationships with the community. Yeah. Uh, they're getting trained by someone who's a professional athlete they already respect and look up to in a sense. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, by, by having the, the athletes actually facilitate the training, you know, it's most of the time it's done by a former cop and it's just passing down the same, I think, bad uh, training. Um, there's definitely some implicit bias uh, and that just comes from the history of police in our country coming down, you know, going all the way back to their, you know, founding as, as slave catchers. Um, mm-hmm. And that sort of training that has, has sort of remained. Um, we haven't been able to really scrub that completely uh, from, from police training. And I think one way that we do is by replacing the former police facilitators with anti-racists um you know it comes down it kind of goes back to that thought of if racism is learned behavior and all the teachers are racist it's inevitable that the students are going to become racist Mm -hmm. and i just wonder if the same holds true for anti-racism you know let's let's mess around and find out right um you know, and, and looking at, like, like you mentioned earlier, uh, the, the community building events. Right now, currently, the model is like one community liaison officer out engaging with, you know, a large population of the, the community. You know, like one cop playing basketball with a bunch of kids. And that's, that's a great experience for that one cop. Yeah, what about all the others who don't do those things? Exactly, exactly. Right now, the community engagement uh, is designed on making the community accepting of the cop when we need to make the cops accepting of the community. Mm-hmm. And part of that comes down to them not living in the communities that they serve. Um you know, and that's, that's been a historic problem. You know, you can look at like uh, uh, Rodney King and, you know, the cops that uh, tuned him up um, were all from Santa Clarita. They, they're not from LA, you know? Um, and so I think that if we're able to use, you know, the, the student athletes um, and professional athletes we can find folks that are from the neighborhoods where they're going to be policing. Yeah. And I think that as a system, community policing works a lot better than having uh, large departments that are centralized and people that have no idea what the area is like. Uh, I think that should be a requirement, like to be a police officer, you have to at least have, have been in the area for a little bit. Right, right. I know that like in, in Minneapolis, they're, they're changing their uh, police oversight thing. And to be on the civilian review board, you have to reside, like you have to represent the district, just like, mm-hmm. um, you know, the city councilman. So uh, it just, 
I don't know how I feel about that change. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, I don't know. I don't know. Just uh, creating less accountability and less, you know, I think diversity or, or, I don't know, whatever in that, that civilian review board. And that's another thing. Why can't these, a representative from these teams and these institutions like the NCAA, why can't they have a seat on those boards? You know, if a cop has repeated use of force complaints against them, um, the, their employer, the NFL, should know about that, you know? And yeah. maybe instead of giving that guy, you know, the, the privilege of running out onto the field alongside their favorite team, maybe they get stuck in the parking lot, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and going back to just a minute ago when I talked about, you know, uh, getting officers from the neighborhoods that they patrol. Um, if the NCAA were to adopt this policy of changing their game day security contract, then uh, we can sort of build a athlete officer pipeline. That's right. Um, because not every, every athlete is going to go into the NFL, you know, uh, Last I checked, there's really no like professional track league in America. So, you know, those track and field athletes, um, you know, maybe they would be better at running down a fleeing suspect than having then, to like shoot them in the back or something, you know? Yeah. Um, another thing with that too is the people, these athletes already have the community interaction. A lot of people. Yep. Uh, that are in you know athletics they talk to a lot of people they have good social skills for the most part and they yep. know how to interact with people from various different backgrounds and various different communities because you know they go to different games they meet all kinds of people and yeah. that's the interaction and experience that a lot of people who become cops don't really have especially in certain areas yeah you have, uh, you have someone who's only ever interacted with one type of person and has never really gotten out of his small town now trying to police the entire city with all yeah. kinds of things that he's never seen before. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and, uh, you know, you look at, um, uh, and so, ah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. So a couple of years ago, when I first really came out with this idea, I, I called into a sports talk show in Tuscaloosa and, you know, sort of gave them, you know, the, the idea, the basics. And they said, you know, do you really expect these, you know, football players to, you know, uh, be men of good character or something like that? Or these, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I, I respect Coach Saban's decision to get men of good character. Um, and, you know, so they didn't, they kind of were like, oh, okay, well, you know, you got a point. Because we are talking about college-educated folk. And de-escalation, it's not rocket science, you know? Yeah, it's, it's a skill you learn. I mean, if you have enough social interaction, you, you learn it. Yeah. Like you're put in situations, especially on a college campus, there's plenty of situations where you have to know how to de-escalate a problem. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, and I mean, it's, it's not difficult to learn how to do it. I've seen these videos, many videos on the, uh, the internet of cops and it's almost as if they're intentionally trying to escalate the situation is how I, Oh yeah. It. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think it comes down to, uh, some of their training. Um, it comes down to their, they're trained like warriors, you know, they're trained to always be ready to be killed and shot in the line of duty. Um, and rather than being part of the community, they're seeing the, they view the community as a potential threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't know how we change that, but we got to try something, you know, you got to shift um, the focus from that warrior mentality to more of like a protector mentality. Don't view the right. community as your enemy. You have to view the community as uh, the thing you're trying to protect you're trying to keep everyone safe yeah yeah there's going to be situations where you have to use force i mean there's like situations like if a school shooter or uh, someone robs a bank or is beating or mugging some of them but those situations are not what is seen in a lot of these really popularized events like you have several people who are not resisting arrest surrendering and then getting executed and Right. It's, it's not necessary to do that. You can, I mean, I don't know. I've read uh, Malcolm Gladwell, one of his books. His idea was, oh, the cops are just afraid of everyone. That's why they're jumping to deadly force because they're afraid. And yeah. that's, I, I kind of get it, but also I kind of don't. Like, what do you have to be afraid of? You have full body armor, sometimes military grade weapons, yep. and you're going up against a guy who might have a handgun. Right, right. Yeah. And, the reason that they're trained that they're afraid is because they're trained that way. And, you know, if you go, you look at George Floyd and, and his murder and the technique that uh, Derek Chauvin used, that he, he didn't come up with that by himself, that he was trained to do that. He followed his training. And that's the problem with that situation is that, you know, if I, I think if you put another cop in that situation, you 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 know half the time you're going to come up with the same exact result, yeah. um, and it's just because that's that's the way they were trained. I remember seeing a video a couple of weeks after George Floyd's murder of you know some protesters. I think they were in Dallas, and you know a couple of cops like tackled one guy in the street. And there's some bystanders like taking the video and they put, you know, their knee on his neck and the, the bystanders holler at them. And it was exactly the same way that Derek Chauvin did. Mm. And, you know, thankfully the cops in that situation pulled their knee off the guy's neck. Um, But, you know, it's, they were following their training. This is, this is how they are trained. Um, they're not trained to be, you know, mental health care professionals. Um, but you know, a guy with the gun doesn't, doesn't solve every problem, you know? Yeah. And there's, there's a quickness to just jump to shooting and killing the person when in yeah. many cases you could deescalate the situation. And I'm not saying that has to be the cop's responsibility. There could be an onsite person whose yeah. whole field is de-escalation and negotiation. Yeah. 
Um, but a lot of times I feel like cops are too quick to jump to force when yeah. a little conversation can go a long way to absolutely you know de-escalating a situation. Yeah, I, 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 I wish I had the like the source, but uh, I remember hearing on NPR a few years ago, uh, they quoted some study that said that like the likelihood of either the you know citizen or the officer uh, dying or being wounded in the interaction drops dramatically for every one second that the interaction lasts. So most, you know, uh, police officer involved shootings happen within the first 30 seconds Mm -hmm. of, of their interaction. And when you stretch that first interaction out to a minute, um, you know, the, the rate for violence, um, just dramatically drops from, you know, I think it was like 80% of you know interactions involving you know some sort of use of force whether it's you know a gun or uh baton or taser or something Mm -hmm. um it drops from like 80 percent down to like 25 you know and it's just a matter of taking the time everybody let's let's take a breath let's make sure that that person who you're yelling at understands what you're yelling at them Mm -hmm. because there's something that happens in our brain when we are confronted with a stressful situation. We get like this tunnel vision, mm-hmm. but it also happens with our hearing. And when, you know, cops show up and they burst down your door or whatever, and they're all yelling at you, you can't hear any of them exactly. because you, mm-hmm. you get that tunnel vision and the cops need to understand that. And they need to give, the the subject time to process what is happening you know there's a lot of people uh it's either fight flight or freeze a lot of people they freeze up when confronted with the cop it's like the cop's telling them what to do screaming at him yelling at him the guy's just sitting there it's because they haven't processed what's happening yet it takes them a little bit longer because they're in that state where they freeze up right Right. And, you know, you look at at like Tamir Rice is a classic example of someone who would have been saved by de-escalation because, you know, if you look at the cop, he pulls right up within, I don't know, eight, ten feet of Tamir Rice. He jumps right out of his car and within two seconds, he's popped off two rounds. There is no way that anyone can have a chance to lay down their gun within that length of time, you know? And so if that cop had just followed de-escalation, stay back, stay in your car, take a breath, give that subject time to understand that you are there for them because Tamir Rice, he was just playing he wasn't doing anything. He was just playing at the park. He was just a kid. Why cops roll by that neighborhood all the time. You know, he, he wasn't doing anything wrong. They're not there for him. You know? So when that cop jumps out and starts yelling, he's looking around like, who are you to yell at? You know? 
it, it goes back to what we had talked about earlier. You view the community as the, the other, the enemy. The when threat, you, yeah. yeah. You have to look at these people as people. Like, you can't think of them. Now, I'm not, you have to be cautious, obviously, but you can't think yeah. of people as, oh, these people are out to get me. That, that's right. the case. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, comes back to that saying, like, you know, when you hear hooves, you know, you think horses, not zebras, right? Mm-hmm. So when you show up at a park right now, the cops are thinking zebras. You know, they're thinking everyone out there is a threat. That guy at the park with that, that gun, he's there to kill everyone, you know, as opposed to them relaying the message that he could have been a juvenile. And that, that was never communicated. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it, it, his, his death really affected me. And, yeah. um, and that's that's what really sucks is when it's a kid. I mean, they, they weren't doing anything. Yeah, and it's completely scared. preventable, yeah. you know? So many of these situations are preventable. Yeah. And I forget the name of the, the individual, but this is one, uh, I believe several cops were fired from this one, uh, where the, the person was um, in a hotel and they were crawling and then the, the officer shot them in the head as they were crawling, following. Them. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't, I'll have to send you down. I don't remember their name. But, yeah, uh, that was one that really affected me. Yeah, I re- I think I remember hearing about that one, but um, sorry, my dog is all up in my face right now. But um, yeah, it, you know, you remember the the guy who was sitting in the middle of the road with his like he's a caretaker. Oh yeah, I remember his that one. autistic charge. Yeah, and he's laying there with his hands up in the air, and he still got shot. It's like you know? no matter what you do, you're going to get shot in some of these cases. And it's very, it's very unfortunate. Like, yeah. And this goes back to, uh, to your idea of having the athletes and the NFL and these other organizations be the ones who facilitate part of the training, at least. And, yeah. And that way, I really like this, too, because if you have someone who, like, let's say a professional athlete, that's going to get rid of the implicit or it's going to, in my mind, get rid of some of the implicit bias that an older right. uh, retired cop would have. Yeah. And, you know, I think simply by filtering it through a black person would get rid of a lot of that bias, you know, yeah. I, and I don't mean to say that as like being racist, but there's just certain things that uh, black people uh, can see as far as racism that I am, I'm blind to. And when, you know, it comes down to like microaggressions and things like that, that's stuff that I'm not like super in tune to. I'm more of like aware of the, the macro racism, you know, this partially comes back to the fact that for hundreds of years, the black communities have been over-policed. Absolutely. Uh, in comparison to a white community, I, there, you hardly, like in the neighborhood I live in, I hardly ever see a police, a police car or any police doing right. anything. But when I go to another neighborhood, they're all over the place. It's yeah. like they're always constantly on patrol looking for something. And their whole right. argument is, oh, there's more crime in these neighborhoods. But the fact right. of the matter is there's more crime there because there's more cops there arresting people. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And I think it comes down to the, you know, that, that broken windows policing policy, um, you know, that, uh, 
where you know they they see small crimes and they focus on that area as uh you know trying to stop bigger crimes but Mm -hmm. all you end up doing is you know uh getting people plugged into the system Mm -hmm. and then once you're in that system and they got their hooks in you it is so hard to get out let's Um, uh, let's take a 15 year old kid gets arrested for possession and right that's going to change his entire life trajectory uh, absolutely what was just a you know just doing some weed for fun now that turns into you know running drugs or stealing or doing all kinds of things yeah. because yeah of that first initial arrest right and and you know um it comes down to like what you know there's a revolving door in probation and and the you know uh incarceration and things and how can you you know, hold down a job when your parole officer, or your probation officer is constantly, you know, manufacturing some sort of violation. Um, you know, how are you going to be able to really hold down a steady job? Um, you know, so when those folks need to go make some money, you know, they, they turn to easier ways than traditional employment. Because the way the system is set up, it's it's so difficult for them to get traditional employment. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, which is why I'm a big fan of things like, um, excuse me, you know, the, the band, the box movement. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's a good step in the right direction. But, you know, I, uh, police officers need to understand that every act, interaction that they have with the citizen is a potential life altering interaction for that citizen you know you know when just when you you know get pulled over if you get a a, you know speeding ticket now you gotta deal with that now you gotta pay for that you gotta you know change things and cops just don't for for cops i think it's just part of their normal daily you know daily business is just out there changing people's lives for the worse every day. Yeah. And they don't, they don't really get that. It's like to yeah. them, it's just, you know, a menial task, but yeah. this could really ruin someone's life. I mean, something as simple as a speeding ticket could really mess someone up. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, when you go back to like some of the drug possession things, um, you know, you can't like get, federal student aid if you've been convicted of certain crimes and things. And so, you know, those, it, it, you know, the, the punishments, I think sometimes just go beyond what uh, is necessary or whatever. But, um, you know, I think we agree. Yeah. The punishment, the, uh, the judicial system, this goes back to uh, the Nixon administration, mandatory minimums. It's like, that defeats the whole purpose of having a judge. If you're going to have a mandatory minimum in place, like I think there's all kinds of circumstances that like, Oh, I busted this guy for possession of uh, an ounce of marijuana. Oh, well, according to the mandatory minimum, that's 20, 30 years in prison. Right. Right. You can't do anything about it. And that's just completely absurd where in other cases you have someone who, uh, who rapes a person and the judge is, Oh, well there's circumstance like, Oh, he's just yeah. a kid. I, like, how is there no mandatory minimum for things like rape and sexual abuse, but there is for uh, low-level nonviolent drug crimes? It doesn't make sense to me. Right. 
right right yeah and you know there's there's i think we need to overhaul the entire you know criminal justice system from you know starting from the police officers going all the way through to you know how we uh reintegrate folks into you know after they do their time and they get back out on the street you know i think that there's not a lot of support and you know a lot of those folks you know they get out and they're told okay go get a job today well you know whatever it is you've got to do it and there's uh, there's very little programs very little help for people and the right. whole point of prison i think should be to rehabilitate i mean some very few people i think but there are some people who are beyond rehabilitation and should right. probably be in prison for the remainder of their lives but most people should you know go to commit their crime they go to prison the idea should be they're rehabilitated so they don't commit these crimes again yeah yeah the american prison system is more so about punishment than it is rehabilitation absolutely absolutely um you know it's it's i don't know revenge in a way you know societal revenge for wrongdoing um as opposed to you know fixing the problems of our society that caused that person to you know do that crime whatever it is um and you know that's that's the overhauling the the whole system is is you know sort of beyond the scope of this idea but it's you know this can be a good start the ultimate fan experience for the folks in blue yeah i like the idea a lot because of all the positives we've uh, we've gone over and let's just uh, to briefly summarize it real quick what this experience is you're having the professional athletes come in have conversations with the cops you know tell them about de-escalation tell them about you know oh uh, you know think about having uh, if you're a cop and lebron james shows up to tell mm-hmm. you how to use your body cam that's going to be an impactful moment on you yeah 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 absolutely you know you look at at like louisville um uh, Teddy Bridgewater and Lamar Jackson both went to college there and having them, you know, show up and teach the cops how to activate their body camera. Cause apparently Louisville cops still can't figure that one out. Um, and then, you know, you throw them a pass, you know, catch a touchdown, rah, rah, rah. You know, we got some cheerleaders out, make a big celebration of it. Um, but then, you know, we take that video from the officer's body camera of, you know, them them catching that touchdown pass. And we put it on, you know, in a loop on a digital picture frame. And we include some other little, you know, uh, reminders of the lessons from the weekend. Um, but, you know, you create that constant subliminal reminder of the positive emotional experience of activating your body camera and it's going to just be psychologically reinforced Mm -hmm. and so hopefully um that sort of takes away some of the uh oh i forgot kind of thing and makes it more instinctual that you know every time you hit record and quite honest, it should it should not be optional. Cops should not have the ability to to turn their body cameras on and off. But uh, here we are, 
And, you know, we gotta, gotta deal with what we got. So, um, but you know, I think, and then like looking at sort of the, there's a study that got put out by a trio from Berkeley, um, regarding implicit bias in police training. And they outlined, you know, three uh, potential things for further research. Uh, one of them was, you know, intergroup contact. I think we sort of talked about that and, and how to reimagine that. Um, you know, the second is the exposure to counter stereotypical exemplars. Now that I had to had to look up because it's more of like a social science term, um, and a counter stereotypical exemplar is just like a poster or an image of someone doing something contrary to stereotypes. So, very famous example is Rosie the Riveter, you know, mm -hmm. and how much that image went into, you know, helping uh, women gain respect in the workforce and you know just gain you know uh opportunities in the workforce period um you know so that digital picture frame will sort of serve that purpose and then uh the last one is um a stereotype negation so uh with with that you know you think about the officers interactions with black people most white cops the only time they're interacting with a black person is when they're putting them in handcuffs mm -hmm. and if that's the case then you know for that officer they're going to think that every black person needs to be in handcuffs it just reinforces the stereotype exactly and so if we can interrupt that by putting in uh, giving the officer time to interact with, you know, a, a black man of, you know, like you said, they already respect him because of their athletic prowess. So let's use that respect that is already there and build upon it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, one of the things that I, in my research, I did, come across was was a program called a long talk but i think the the full name is the long hard uncomfortable talk about the truth or a long hard talk about the uncomfortable truth anyway at the end of it they had you know black parents sort of telling you know the folks the camera whatever um the cop talk that they had with their kids and, you know, I remember one of the parents, he looked at the camera and he was like, my son is 14 and he's 6'2 and it terrifies me, mm. you know. And I think the officers need to hear that same talk that the black parents are giving to their children because, I don't know, there's just an emotional impact that like as a white person i cannot impart that the same way that mm -hmm. those black parents can and so i think we need to to find a way to give them a stage you know going back to my personal experience you know building a stage and setting up a mic is exactly what i used to do and 
I just want to do that for black people and then give them an audience of cops contractually required to listen. Mm. And, you know, I not telling those, the black folks what to say, but you know, in, in sort of my anti-racist journey, you know, I started years ago as just not being racist and I thought that was good enough. Um, but then, you know, I realized, uh, you know, that I was, you know, passively participating in, in racist systems. And I really wanted to change that and, you know, uh, work on confronting racism and, you know, head on in the hearts and minds of racists. Hmm. And I believe that, you know, that, that it is possible to, you know, change a racist. Um, and I, I just think one of the ways that, that that is best done is by a real one-on-one personal connection between a racist and, you know, a, a person of color or other minority. And that's exactly how it starts through conversations. And exactly. You realize that these systems of belief that you've been taught your entire life, you realize that they're not accurate. Right. Uh, it, it's racism is what the, the Nazis did. Yeah. And you dehumanize the other person to allow you to continue to exploit them. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I think if we can create the situation for that, that one-on-one connection to organically be built, um, you know, using the NCAA game day security contracts to manufacture that environment. Um, yeah. You know, you might only get one cop, but if, if you're doing it, you know, 250, I think there's like 256 NCAA division one schools last time I looked and, but that would be 256 cops all across the country that are no longer racist. And if we can do that each and every year, um, you know, eventually. Yeah. Change is incremental. It's yeah. It's not massive. Nothing's going to happen overnight. It's one, one minor thing at a time. And over time yeah. they build up to huge change. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just finding a way to mass produce the opportunity for, for change. You know, you, <laughs> uh, you know, you, whenever, whenever you in, accuse white folks of being racist quite often they'll say i have a black friend and if that's all it takes is just a black friend for a person to not be racist can we just can we find black friends for all these racists (laughs) you know like uh it's obviously an oversimplification of things but you know it, it starts somewhere and i'll tell you now as someone who lives in the south the whole uh black friend thing is very prevalent, but the people, unfortunately, are still racist. They'll just be like, oh, absolutely. if that person is there, they'll just say things like, oh, you know, I don't mean you. You're not yeah. like the rest of them. Like, yeah. So, no, it, you got to go beyond that, like you were saying. Yeah, and there's yeah. Ways, the ways to do that. You facilitate these conversations, these genuine conversations, and you, you, have to, you have to come at it from a place of humility 
And you have to realize that your experiences are not representative of everyone else's experiences. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I just creating the opportunity for a real conversation between police and the communities that, that they're supposed to protect and serve, you know, um, and just, I don't know, trying to overcome, you know, the, their pre, I don't know, their, the bias that they're yeah, taught. Yeah, the biases, yeah, I get, I get yeah. The, you know, and it's, it's, it, it goes back to their training, you know, they're, they're trained to be, you know, biased and racist. And that's not, that's not the fault of the officer. You know, I, I, I also remember um, reading something a couple of weeks ago and they, the author talked about like three, three forms of racist, right? So you're either actively anti-racist you're passively racist by participating and perpetuating a racist system or like you're actively racist where you're going and burning crosses. Mm-hmm. So when I say, you know, something about all cops are racist, I don't mean all cops are going out and burning crosses on the weekend. I mean, yeah, all yeah, cops are participating and perpetuating a racist system. So, you know, even, Black cops can be racist, you know, because um, once you put on that uniform, you're not black or white, you're blue, you know, and it just seems like right now in this country, blue people hate black people and we got to find a way to, to, to change that. Yeah. And, you know, I Tommy Laren has been speaking at police training conferences and her message is that, you know, for the officer to use lethal force, they shouldn't feel bad about that because uh, the, the suspect or whoever they use that force on should have just complied. It's not the cop's fault. It's that person's fault. Mm-hmm. And if Tommy Laren has time to, you know, give that message, why not an anti-racist giving an anti-racist message? You know, equal time sort of doctrine. And we can't just ask for it. We have to demand it. Mm -hmm. And I think that the NCAA is more powerful than, you know, the fraternal order of police or like the, uh, you know, NFL players union. I think they're more powerful than the police union, you know, um, because if, let's say, you know, the Louisville police or the, the, you know, Minneapolis police don't want to, you know, participate with this, you know, ultimate fan experience thing. Well, that's fine. Let's, let's open it up to cops from the suburbs because, you know, that stadium is private property and that institution um, gets to decide who carries a gun in their house mm-hmm. yeah. they decide who does security like it doesn't have to be the police department they can bring exactly. outside people and the police yep. department loses that money yep they can hire blackwater if they wanted yeah. um you know but that's what, it, that's what it all comes down to the money and once they see that yeah. they're losing money they'll be right on board with it yep yep absolutely and you know if uh if the cops don't want to play ball then you know the athletes don't want to play ball maybe 
you know, hopefully. And, you know, you look at how fast things changed a couple of years ago when the NBA went on strike just for a weekend that they went on strike. And all of a sudden, every NBA stadium is now a, a polling place. You can go and vote there. Um, and so, you know, you look at how fast that happened. And so I think if, uh, you know, the an athlete were to hear this idea and decide, you know what, I'm not going to play unless I get a chance to, you know, make sure that the cop standing behind me on the sideline isn't burning crosses on the weekend. Um, you know, I think that this ultimate fan experience thing could very well become a reality. Yeah. It, you know, I think it just would take one athlete, one team, one university to say, you know what, let's give this a try. Let's see what we can change by this, through this institutional relationship. We talk a lot about institutional racism and, you know, this is an opportunity for institutional anti-racism, mm -hmm. you know, and like the NHL, uh, all of their team executives and everybody went through anti-racist training and, and that kind of thing, which is great. I'm an anti-racist. You're an anti-racist. Great problem solved. Right. Mm -hmm. Except being an anti-racist to me means being active in combating racism. And so, you know, if, if the NHL and their owners are really anti-racist and, you know, hopefully they're looking for, you know, some sort of uh, anti-racism thing to enact, you know, I think a lot of folks, uh, with good intentions don't always have the right don't always have the answer they don't know what to do they want to do something you know well, yeah, so they this is hire a great idea that these people could do this is a very unique idea that i think uh i don't think i've seen anyone else uh come up with so i think that if this was okay. implemented then you know i feel like there's a real possibility this could change some things yeah. And it just, it just makes sense. You know, when you say it out loud, the ultimate fan experience for the folks in blue sponsored by Pepsi. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like something that's been happening for years now, you yeah. know? And I, you know, it just, it just makes so much sense because there is that relationship. You are, especially with like the rise in domestic terrorism right now, there are major concerns about security at large public gatherings like these sporting events. And so to improve public safety, let's, you know, make sure that we're doing these venue tours, uh, you know, annually. And let's just expand that and make it a three-day weekend kind of thing. Um, you know, there was... Going back to like the community involvement, um, community engagement thing, um, there was a, a report by a group called the Police Executive Research Forum or PERF. Um, they actually uh, facilitated the de-escalation training in Louisville over the last couple of years. They've shown some, some tremendous results with that. Um, and they also outlined, they wrote like a 40 point plan for reimagining uh police recruit training and i i think a lot of that is very valuable and one of the things that they mentioned is having actually the family 
of the officers involved in the community building. And I think the ultimate fan experience for the folks in blue could provide that, that opportunity. You know, let's have a tailgate party and all the cops bring your wives and kids and they get a chance to meet these professional athletes too. And just and then it becomes a generational thing where you're passing on these lessons instead of passing exactly. on the implicit racism or the implicit biases, you're passing mm-hmm. on more positive things. Like you were saying mm-hmm. earlier, um, stereotype correction, I think is the term uh, yep. you you're passing on these more positive experiences and these incremental changes over time lead to bigger and more uh, pronounced changes. Yeah. 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 And you know, racism is, is a learned behavior. And, you know, I think if, if we can, I don't know, try and instill some anti-racism in, in folks from an early age, you know, that it could really make a difference in, in the long run. Um, Because, you know, right now it seems like, what are we doing to actually combat racism? Are we just hoping that these racists like, as my mom would say, come to Jesus, you know, realize yeah. the, the errors of their way and decide to change their heart? Um, or, you know, are we going to go out there and find a way to force them to listen and, you know, force them to change? And if they don't, you know, what sort of consequences can we impose? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I always heard, oh, we just got to pray for them. Well, right. prayer is one thing, but prayer without action, even Jesus said prayer without action is meaningless. Right, right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm not hoping and praying that cops are going to change. I'm, I'm trying to force them to change. You know, <laughs> like thoughts and prayers are great, but, you know, let's actually uh, let's let's do, do something, something behind it. Yeah. Right. Oh, man. right. Well, Adam, thanks so much for, for being on this episode with me and talking about well, this. Thanks, idea. Mike. I really appreciate you having me. Um, yeah. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I here. hope everyone listening, I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Same here. Yeah. Just call your congressman. That's it. <laughs> call your congressman. Call your local representatives. Call your city council. You know, um, if you graduated college, call your university. You know, if you're an alumni, call the Alumni Association. Um, if you like this idea, tell somebody. And uh, hopefully we can find a way to, you know, just just one time, just somebody has to go first, you know. One, one person might not seem like enough, but one person turns into two people, turns into three yeah. people. The problem is it takes that first person. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, reach out to people, tell them about this idea, share this idea, share this podcast with anyone who's interested. And Absolutely. hopefully we can work towards a more anti-racist society. And exactly. thank you everyone again for listening. Thanks again, Adam, for being here. I hope you enjoyed Thanks for this having episode. Me. And uh, yeah, I'll be hearing from you again, I'm sure. Hope you have a good day, man. Mm-hmm. See you later. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.